0: song that Hannah just led for us um, is called the Revelation Song. And it's, the lyrics are based on a passage of Scripture in the book of Revelation. It says, Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Day and night, ceaselessly, they say, before the most magnificent, beautiful, splendid, powerful God, the only God, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I mean, that's, how can they not be bored saying that? Because God is so beautiful and so holy and so splendid and so mighty. It's just, it never gets old, ever, ever. And we get to participate in that uh, holy moment where we get to cry out with uh, all of the angelic creatures, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When that desire so saturates your life, sin is just not that interesting. And that is our hope here as we gather, that we would be so captivated by the vision of Christ that we would find sin just not interesting. That's part of what it means when we say, that we are a life changing community passionately pursuing Christ. Um, so, my name is Randy. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, and I'm just uh, so happy to get to worship Jesus with you and with our church family. And um, as you look around the room here in our teaching time, we have been on a journey through the Old Testament book of Exodus. The Old Testament book of Exodus. And uh, we're in Exodus chapter 20 right now. It's a sort of a series within a series uh, on the Ten Commandments. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Now, Some of you are sitting here with your first-time guest, and right about now you're thinking, oh, I forgot he was going to talk about this. I should have read his Friday email, you know, and, uh, right? And I totally get that. Um, Here's the deal, (laughs) and I believe this. The Bible has the best things to say about the most important things in life. Best things to say about the most important things in life. And this is very, very important. And so we're going to be looking at this verse here this morning. Um, But before we look at this verse, I want to talk about a book that I hope no one here ever buys. It's called The 50 Mile Rule. Your Guide to Infidelity and Extramarital Etiquette. Is there such a thing? According to the author. Labeled as the ultimate handbook for cheaters, topics include what makes a suitable affair partner, the adultery rules you must never break. Oh, so there are rules. When to call it quits, what to do if you're caught. I'm not making this up. The Chicago Tribune uh, interviewed the author of this book um, along these lines. Question, well, what about the morality of extramarital affairs? Here's what the author said. Well, affairs are immoral and wrong, period. But you knew that was coming. The reality is that people are having them anyway, so you have to meet people where they are, And for a lot of people, morality doesn't end up in it. So if people are doing it anyway, you have to try to mitigate the hard edges. Question number two. You say in your book, don't feel guilty. Well, that doesn't seem realistic. Author's response. Well, guilt is basically something built into society to keep you in line. If you're going about your business in a discreet way, and if you're continuing to take care of your wife, and most importantly, your children... There's no reason to feel guilt. Question three, last question. Say a friend were considering getting involved in an extramarital affair, what advice would you give them? Answer The advice I would give is that it's based on your needs. People enter into affairs for many reasons, it's not always just sex, there are emotional needs. Affairs can, affairs can serve some short term tactical needs in a long term relationship strategy. Here's what the back cover says A successful affair is an undiscovered affair. Let the 50 mile rule book show you how to best stray so you don't have to pay. If you're not reading this book, your spouse probably is. Wisdom from the world. Now, one of the ways we can test the wisdom of a thought is by asking ourselves, what would our country look like if this thinking were mass-produced on a national scale? Well, in a way, it already is, isn't it? Uh, We have been aided and abetted by Hollywood, corporate America, Washington, D.C., and frankly, some pastors. So the question is, are we better off? Are we? Are our families, communities, churches better off? Well, is there a better way? Yes. Yes, it's the creator's intention. And it's not the 50-mile rule. It's the 50-year rule. That is marriage as a soul uniting, mind uniting, body uniting, life uniting till death do us part covenant between a woman and a man. A picture of godly love, godly sacrifice, godly leadership a sacred, satisfying, intimate, naked, and unashamed union, which is a living parable of God's love for his people, a portrait which, if mass-produced, would cause the flourishing of not just families but communities and the flourishing of a nation and a legacy of holiness for our children And grandchildren that they might thrive that they might thrive that's the better way and so in order to protect this God ordained God glorifying sacred Union the Lord has gifted us gifted us with the seventh commandment you shall not commit adultery Now, what I want to do this morning is, I want us to define the term biblically, and then I want to talk about the rationale behind this particular commandment, and then I want us to look at two case studies. I want to look at a leader who, by God's grace, was able to keep this command when tempted, and then I want to look uh, at another leader who fell. And I want to learn from both to honor God. And, and my goal, church family, um, well, let me put it this way. You need more than willpower to keep this command. Willpower is not enough. So, so my goal is to take us and keep us into the presence of a holy, beautiful, splendid, sacred, almighty, captivating king and to have us stay in his presence both in this room and out of this room wherever we go so that this particular sin and any other sin is just simply not interesting. I want us to be so captivated with Christ that we find sin uninteresting. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's where we're going today. So, so let's uh, define the term here. You shall not commit adultery. The Bible defines adultery as consensual sex between a married person and someone other than their spouse. So adultery invades another's marriage. Uh, Adultery is the act of pillaging a marriage. It steals the honor of the secret, sacred space between a husband and a wife. So uh, adultery is not merely the pirating of someone's spouse. It's pirating honor. And it vandalizes one's relationship with God. So the seventh commandment prohibits sex with any married person except his or her spouse. And no married person may have sex with anyone other than his or her spouse. But why adultery? I mean, the Bible gives us other sexual sins. um, Incest, fornication, bestiality, homosexuality why this sexual sin why is this sexual sin in the Ten Commandments and that takes us to question number two the reason or rationale and the reason is Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 that's the reason Genesis 2:24 is the, the quintessential biblical definition of marriage and a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to His wife and the two will become one flesh. So, God ordained marriage between a man and a woman as the foundational building block of society. Only a man and a woman can produce offspring. And from their union come children, and economic security, and personal safety, and the flourishing of family. And when families flourish, communities flourish. And when communities flourish, the nation flourishes. Some of you remember Stephen Covey, who uh, he's since passed away, but he was a business consultant and a business author. He wrote a book, um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Principle-Centered Leadership, uh, First Things First. In his book, First Things First, um, he tells about his commentary of Edward Deming's total quality movement in business. And Edward Deming... Uh, Covey says, believed that organizational problems uh, were, had to do with systems, not people. And so you need to fix the system. Well, Stephen Covey disagreed. He says, no, no, people create systems. So let's we've got to go to people. And in a business meeting, one time someone asked Stephen Covey, how do we get principle-centered leadership in Congress? That's a great question, How do we get principle-centered leadership in Congress? Covey immediately replied, well, how do you treat your wife? And the person said, well, what does that have to do with anything? And then Covey said this, and here it is. He said, because public policy is private morality writ large. See, that goes back to this. See, healthy families come from... Healthy marriages, which produce healthy nations. And the key to marital health is exclusivity. Exclusivity. That the sole object of my affection has chosen me to be the sole object of her affection. I mean, think about this. Does anyone really want to hear a song that's titled, I Love You With Most of My Heart? Or, how about this? I want to spend the rest of my 30s with you. No, we want lyrics like, Let every woman know I'm yours, or You're the only one I see, and that's the one thing that won't change. Well, see, that's God's intention in Eden. He placed the man and the woman in the garden, a place of delicious pleasures and set them free to enjoy. Eden was full of sight and smell and touch and taste and the garden introduced them to to pleasures of exclusive love, exclusivity. God did not create Adam and Eve and put them in Eden only to demand avoidance. God wanted them to actively participate in selfless, sacrificial love for one another. Genesis 2:24 So then adultery poisons this That's why it follows the commandment about murder in that adultery can result in murdering marriage And it precedes the commandment about theft because it steals what belongs to another I don't know how you're hearing this right now. Some of you are here and you may be suspicious about the scripture's wisdom. Okay, I I respect that, but let me just ask you this question Does sexual activity outside marriage simplify or complicate a relationship? Does it make us more objective about a relationship or less objective? God has gifted us the seventh commandment to free us from the lie that uncommitted sex brings satisfaction. And part of the problem is that freedom-loving Americans just don't like commandments. Our, our culture claims that commandments kill pleasure. So food isn't fun if you're told what to eat. And money isn't enjoyable if you have to spend it certain ways. And creating artistic beauty is no fun if you have to think about the message communicated by what you create. And, and sex isn't enjoyable if you're told who and how and when you can have it with. I mean, Eden was the most lovely place. On earth, yet God gave boundaries for Adam and Eve. And God has issued the seventh commandment as a boundary for the flourishing of society. God says, I want to free you from falsehood for flourishing. I want to protect your union, God says. I want to protect your children and grandchildren. That's why we have the seventh commandment. Well, how do we protect the purity of our lives and our marriages? How do we do that? That's the third question I want us to get to here for the rest of our time. And I want us to consider two leaders in Scripture. Now, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. So let's look at the heart of these two leaders, their choices and their consequences. First, there's Joseph. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 39. You'll find that on page 33 of your church Bibles. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob in Genesis as Jacob's favorite son. Joseph wore a special coat as a sign of his favored status. He was hated by his brothers who sold him as a slave to Egypt and led Jacob to believe that he'd been mauled by wild animals. So now we kind of know how Israel wound up in Egypt. It started here with Joseph and his sale by his brothers into slavery. And Genesis 39 verses 1 and 2 say, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So Joseph had to learn a new language and new culture. And he was no longer a favored son, but he was a slave. And, but God was with him. And over time, Joseph was promoted to be Potiphar's personal attendant. And Potiphar's life was never so easy with Joseph as his um, Really, executive manager over his household. Potiphar didn't have to worry about bills or finances or his estate or his lawn or clothing to the dry clean, his schedule, his appointments. Joseph just took care of all of it. The only decision Potiphar had to make was, what do I want to eat? Genesis 39, verse 6. So Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. You know something's going to happen, right? Verse 7, something did happen. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, there's nothing subtle about that. Joseph, single, young, handsome, away from home, away from his dysfunctional family. And Joseph could have rationalized, right? He could have said, You know, well, I had a poor role model. I'm in a culture that promotes promiscuity. I could get that promotion, short term tactics for a longer term strategy and make a big difference for God. Verse 8 But he refused. And he gave two reasons I will not betray my boss There it is. Joseph lived his life in the presence of the beautiful, almighty, splendid, powerful God. God's presence, God's joy, God's love, God's spirit so saturated his life that he had no desire to offend the most important person in his life. God was his treasure, so he did not find Sin, interesting. Think about what Israel was called to be. You are my treasured possession, God says. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. How could adultery be better than that? Church family, listen to me. Sin is never attractive. It's not. Satan never asked Adam and Eve, may I interest you in some attractive sins? Sin is only attractive when we fail to see it for what it is. And Joseph saw it for what it was and he refused. Look at verse 12. Potiphar's wife was relentless. And one day she just grabbed him. She caught him by his garment. Lie with me, she said, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So Joseph didn't meditate his way out of that room. He didn't pray about it. There's some things you don't need to pray about. should have already prayed about it. Don't pray, flee. Don't try to compromise, get out, run. Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Flee from sexual immorality. You know what the word flee means? It means vacate the room. Vacate the room. Let me show you what I mean. Can you hear me? Do you get it? When I say get it, you say got it. I'll say good. Get it? Good. That's what flee means. Vacate the room. Hang up the phone. Turn off the screen. Disconnect from the internet. And refuse to imagine the possibilities. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why? Because Jesus knows it starts in the heart. Adultery never starts in bed. It always starts in the heart. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery. is just the rest of the commandments here. Sexual immorality, and theft, false witness, slander. And Joseph's heart lived in the presence of God. And, and as a result, he passed the test. Now, not initially, because if you know, some of you may be saying, I'd lose my job if I walked out like that. Yes, you might. You might lose your job, but you won't lose your integrity. And Joseph lost his job. He was sent to the dungeon. Yet he was faithful. And in passing that test, Joseph was prepared at God's timing. See, he didn't know. He didn't know that by passing that test, God was preparing him for something out in the future that he was not even aware of. You cannot fulfill your God-ordained destiny when you deliberately choose disobedience. Someone once said, faith is more than merely believing that Jesus died for your sins. Faith is confidence that God's way is better than sin. That's Joseph. I really wish King David had responded that way. Centuries later, King David of Israel. He'd been king about 20 years. Israel was healthy and strong. David was in the prime of his career. His country had destroyed their most powerful foe, the Ammonites. And now Israel controlled the trade route uh, from Egypt to Syria. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's on page 262 of your church Bibles. 2 Samuel 11.1, one, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Joab's his general. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. So they control the trade route. But verse 1 says, David remained at Jerusalem. So Joseph was, uh, Joseph was tempted while away from home. David was tempted while at home. So temptation can occur when you're busy and busy doing nothing. And before, David had always led the battles himself. But now he kind of abdicates it and dumps it on Joab, his general. So David's by himself. He's got too much time on his hands. He's the king, and he's not accountable to anybody. It's not that staying in Jerusalem was wrong. It just wasn't wise. Too often we ask the wrong question. The best question ever is, what is the wise thing to do? And it wasn't wise to stay in Jerusalem when kings are supposed to be out doing their job. Verse 3 says tells us why it happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David did not say, how can I do this wickedness against my God? You know what he said? He said, what's her name? That was his question. David sent and inquired about the woman. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness and then she returned to her house. And you know what's gonna happen next. You know, verse five, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. And instead of confessing, David just keeps making One bad decision after another. First, he was out where he never should have been. He saw what he never should have seen. He asked a question he never should have asked. And then he took something that wasn't his to have. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, served in David's army. And so David concocted a plan whereby he would bring Uriah home on leave To spend time with her so that it would appear that he's the father. But David the Israelite, get that, Israelite, underestimated Uriah the Hittite's honor. He said to the king, I can't sleep with my wife while your majesty's army is still on duty. So David arranged his death in battle. And the headlines of the Jerusalem Times read, King Mary's widow, a fallen war hero. And Israel was so proud. What a king so wise and benevolent that he would bring this poor widow into his court. And and the ceremony was grand and the food was plenty. And and oh, and now she's blessed with a child from the king and The woman who would have been a destitute widow is now mother to a prince. Everyone was pleased. Not everyone. 2 Samuel 11, 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And God confronted him. David, how could you do this? I, mean, I, I gave you Israel, I gave you Judah, I gave you the kingdom, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you more. All you would have had to do was just ask, but you didn't ask, you took, you did evil. Why, why is adultery evil? It's not merely because a marriage is raided. God says, David, by defiling the marriage of Uriah, you robbed me of the joy I took in witnessing their purity. David, I loved the way Uriah loved Bathsheba. You stole that. And so out of your own house, I will bring calamity. Your sin was in secret. My punishment will be made very public. And God forgave David. David was broken. We know that God forgave David and David. David could not undo the consequences of his sin. And if you had asked David that morning, would you like to wreck the rest of your life in the next 30 minutes, he'd have looked at you like you're crazy. Sin is never attractive. It only appears attractive when we fail to see it for what it is. And here's the irony of it all, church family. King David had the same copy of Joseph's story as you and I just saw it. No wonder the psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against thee. I love you all. Part of my responsibility as your pastor is to make sure that you do not suffer for the wrong reasons. There are are good reasons to suffer. This isn't one of them. I I want us to be protected from suffering. And so I just, I want to ask a question. I ask this question in the fireside room every Sunday. (laughs) What's your name? What's your name? Do you know who you are? Any Josephs in our church? Any Davids here? We're all here. We're all here, rescued and redeemed from a past that we could not change on our own. Do you know where you are? Do you know where you are? Are, are you on the balcony or are you are you in the battle? Are you where you're supposed to be? Are you asking questions you have no business asking? Have you fallen? Have you experienced and felt, yes, felt, Christ's grace and forgiveness? You do not need more willpower. You need stronger desires for the God who is splendid in every way. Sin is never attractive next to the treasure of Christ. Find Christ captivating, and you will find sin uninteresting. That's what I I want us to take home today. And you know what's so captivating about Christ. He took the shame of David's nakedness and put it on his own body, naked and spread out on a Roman cross to die for our sins. And that irresistible grace transforms, hear me now, because these are words that God used of Israel, transforms harlots into virgins and virgins into faithful, beautiful brides. And that's why the Apostle Paul will say in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every dark, distorted, and damning stain disappears beneath the river of Christ's justifying grace. The power for purity begins with Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. And the strength for sustaining purity lies with the Spirit's indwelling presence, reminding us who we are. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. Jesus is your righteousness, and God's love has flooded your heart. And when God's love captures your heart, sin is just uninteresting. Amen.